go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to begin in that passage. As I said this morning, um, several people have commented about it. We are going, there is going to be a change in format. Tonight will be a very conventional sermon. And um, over the next few weeks, things will change from format to format. I won't reiterate all of that. But dispersed within that, I'm going to do uh, three lessons on the church in Ephesus. And not surprisingly, I'm going to look at uh, the beginning of the church, kind of the middle years of the church. Then I'm going to look at the later years of the church, both what the Bible says and what uh, history tells us about it. It's interesting. And since we are talking about the Lord's church in our theme this year, I thought it might be interesting to take a look at one of the more exemplary churches from the first century. So, hence the church in Ephesus, and if you have an outline, you'll see that I've entitled this uh, Beginnings. Welcome everybody that's here, and uh, glad that uh, glad you're back out on this New Year's Day. As far as we know, as we look in the Bible, Paul first visited Ephesus, if you'll look at Acts chapter 18... He first And Ephesus is a city on the western coast, the far western coast of uh, Turkey. Paul first visited there, as far as we know, in our own what is commonly referred to as the second missionary journey. And you know that I call that the third. Um, you want to ask me the reasons why I'd be glad to tell you. But uh, nonetheless, what is commonly known as the second missionary journey, and uh, near the end of it. If you're looking at Acts 18, you'll see that in the greater part of the first half of the chapter, uh, Paul is in Corinth. And we know really about exactly when he was there, because if you'll scan down through the verses, you will see that there was a Roman official, for example, verse 14, by the name of Gallio. Gallio is a well-known individual. Uh, Some of you may or may not have heard of the Roman historian Seneca. Gallio was his brother. He is very well known, and he was only in Ephesus for one year. So it makes it fairly easy to pinpoint uh, when Paul was there, at least within a half year or so. So the year is about A.D. 52, as you can see I put on the outline. And Paul visits um, the city of Ephesus following his time in Corinth. And we can see that. Uh, if, we'll, if you'll drop down to, oh, about verse 18, and we'll pick up reading there. It says, Paul, after he tarried there yet a good while, he was there about a year and a half, he took his leave of the brethren and sailed from there into Syria, and with him went Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Cancrea, for he had a vow. In verse 19, he came to Ephesus. And he left them, that would be Aquila and Priscilla, he left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And so this is really the beginning, you know, and this lesson is about the beginning of the church in Ephesus. This is the very beginning. Paul visits the city, and if you're looking on a map, and I didn't bring a map to show this, not all that important, but if you're looking on a map, he would go from southern Greece, and that's where Corinth is, And he might travel by land, but here it says he sailed. So he's just simply sailing across the water, and it amounts to no more than like a ferry ride. If we were doing that today, it'd be like a ferrying across the water when it's calm. 
ferrying across the water to the western coast of Turkey. It's not all of that far, and he could do that in a short amount of time. So he goes to Ephesus. He goes into the synagogues, and that seems to be his M.O. throughout the book of Acts, to go into the synagogue to begin to reason. I'll come back and talk about that. But to reason with the Jews. And, of course, accompanying him are these new but very trusted converts, Aquila and Priscilla. And so we see that in verses 19 through 21. Paul very quickly leaves. If you'll read verse 21 with me, it says uh, they wanted him to stay there a longer time, verse 20, but he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I I will return again unto you if God will, and he sailed from Ephesus. Now, Aquila and Priscilla remain behind in Ephesus, Paul goes down to Jerusalem, apparently observes the feast, and he will come back. So, if you picture this, Paul has gone there for a very short amount of time. We don't know how much teaching he's done, and we have no idea if there are any converts. It does not mention that. But the preaching has begun. Aquila and Priscilla are there, and the first contact that we see that they have is of a man named Apollos. And so... Tyler read for us this passage beginning in about verse 24. But this was a man who was visiting the city of Ephesus. So he's not a native there. It says, A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. I'm going to talk a little bit about what some of those terms mean. But he came to Ephesus. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. So notice what you have here. You have an orator, a speaker. And in this day and time in the Grecian society, and this would bleed over into this part of Asia, cities such as Colossae, Ephesus, etc., they're given to listening to speakers. We do that in our society. There are people that are well-known speakers, and they get paid, uh, you know, sometimes large amounts of money to go and speak. And this would be the man Apollos. He's an eloquent man. That means he's an orator. He's a good speaker. But not only that, he's very well-educated. And if you look at this, he's born at Alexandria. Why tell us that? Well, it's the truth, obviously. But Alexandria is known as as basically like the educational center of the world. If I say something like Harvard, if I say Yale, if I say MIT, immediately you begin to think of educational centers. Now, MIT, Harvard, if we went to Boston, we would consider that an educational center. Um... Regardless of what we might think of the city or anything else, we know there, there are really good schools there, etc. That was Alexandria. So if a person is born in Alexandria and he's an educated man and he's a good speaker, you can pretty well assume he's had a high level of education. And that's exactly what Luke is telling you. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is an educated man himself. Very educated. In fact, if you were to... You know, if you were to go to the New Testament, you were to look at the writings of the New Testament. If you were to say, of all the people in the New Testament, who, you know, who writes from the most educated point of view? Someone might assume Paul. That would not be correct. Paul would write on what would be equivalent today of, say, a college or graduate work level. If we were to look at someone who's gone through graduate school, we would look at Luke. And Luke's writings, from an educational point of view, are only exceeded by one person 
Um, are, and that would be the writer of Hebrews, and it's written in such a style that I assume it to be um, Apollos. But that's how educated. And in comparison to today's work, we would talk about someone writing a doctoral thesis, and that'd be the level you'd have the book of Hebrews written in the original language. It might be interesting, you go home and check me on this, you'll notice the book of Hebrews never stops. It is an argument built upon an argument, built upon an argument, built upon an argument for 13 chapters. It's a highly technical book, and it's written like, like I say, like what would amount to like a doctoral thesis defending some argument. Now, having said all of that, we know that, you know, Paul would make a comment to the Corinthians how not many mighty, not many noble, and so forth, we might tend to look at very educated people today, and we might say about educated people that not a lot of them are too interested in the Bible, but occasionally you find some. And very educated people can be converted to Christ, and they can be honest in heart, and that really is what we're looking for. Whether someone's educated or not, how honest are they? Apollos was honest. And so as you read this description, you'll notice Luke tells you He's from Alexandria. He was born there. He is an eloquent man, a well-spoken man, literally. He is mighty. The word is powerful, like uh, our word for dynamite. He's powerful in the Scriptures. And if we say someone's powerful in the Scriptures, we talk about a person who really handles it well. They've got power when they use the Scriptures. He's using the Old Testament Scriptures, understand. He came to Ephesus now. And he was not only all of that, but he's also instructed, notice verse 25, in the way of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, he knows about Jesus. He understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He believes that. He's teaching that. He well could have learned that in Jerusalem at some point, being a faithful Jew. But he's fervent in the Spirit. Notice that phrase. So he's fired up about what he believes, we would say. He speaks and teaches diligently the things of the Lord. He's teaching about Jesus what he knows. But unfortunately, at the end of verse 25, he only knows the baptism of John. Now, if you can picture this, Aquila and Priscilla have remained behind in Ephesus. Paul is down in Jerusalem and in that area. Aquila and Priscilla are looking for people. For converts, they're looking for people to teach the truth. They hear this guy. They see how well he understands the scriptures. They know that he has that basis. Not only that, they see that he understands Jesus is the Messiah. But his education or his knowledge of the Lord is not complete. So verse 26, he began to speak confidently, boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla had heard him, they took unto him, they took him unto them, and expounded. And the word expounded means that they really got into the scriptures and explained. And so you can see them sitting down with Apollos and really going through the Old Testament scriptures and showing how Jesus is indeed the Christ. You're right about that, Apollos. But now they're going to go further and teach him that Jesus taught the apostles. They might have said something like, you know, our good friend Paul will be returning to this area. And he's an apostle and he has the truth. But they teach him. Now, why am I going through all of that? A couple of reasons. 
One, because Ephesus itself is an education center. That the people you're going to meet in Ephesus are educated people. They're people who respect study of the Word of God. And they're going to have a respect for that. As you look at what goes on in Ephesus and how the church begins to grow, you'll see, and we will see, that that never changes. That what goes on in Ephesus is going to be a deep study, almost going to school or going to college for Jesus. And we're going to see that. It begins, as far as we know, with the man Apollos, and it will go on for years like that. They will be known for their Bible study. They'll be known for their doctrine. They'll be known for how well they understand the Scriptures. And you know, there are churches and there are places like that. We may know some churches for one thing and some churches for another, but there are some places we would immediately think of as a study center, as a place that is really given to studying the truth and understanding the truth, that the Bible, that Bible knowledge is taught there. That's going to be the church at Ephesus. And I say that for another reason, because there's going to be some terms that are used here, and they're going to be used several times. As they're studying, and as they're reasoning, and as they are learning the Scriptures and teaching the Scriptures to others, they're going to engage in what we might call debate. Debate in the purest sense. Now, not debate in the, what it degenerates into sometimes, but debate like I hope we will see next month when Wes and I first debate a subject. And uh, it won't be a mock debate in the sense that, you know, it isn't, it isn't something that's real. It will be very real. But we will engage in, I think, the type thing that's going on in Ephesus. Stay with me for a moment as we look at this. So they took him aside unto them and expounded, uh, taught him, dug into the Scriptures, the way of God more perfectly. Then the Bible says in verse 27, when he was disposed, notice, to pass into Achaia. Achaia is where Corinth is. So it's like, they've come from Corinth. This guy has come from somewhere. And now he wants to go to Corinth, and you wonder sometimes if they taught him, they converted him, and I think that's fairly evident here, that he now is a Christian, he now understands the truth, but he's got all of this background already. It's not like he's someone that's a total novice that never knew anything about the truth. No, he's ready to go teach. And so basically what they say is, we just came from Corinth, there's some very learned people there, studious people there. If you cross the water and go back into Corinth, they'd be ready for you there. And we know from the book of 1 Corinthians they were. That's exactly what he did. He went back to Corinth. He taught in Corinth. And he taught to the point that unfortunately, as we'll bring up later in the year, some people began to say, forget Paul, I'm behind Paulus. You know, I'm with him. And that's, of course, all wrong. But we do know that this very able teacher took his newfound knowledge and went back to, to Corinth. You'll notice also that it tells us here, in verse 28, he mightily convicted the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Christ, or the Messiah. So he's a very capable teacher. Now, having said all of that, that's really the beginning of the work in Ephesus. Although, 
What we've done is we've talked about two of Paul's companions that he met first in Corinth who have come there, and their first real success appears to be with a visitor to the city. That isn't all that uncommon. And just like we sometimes see here, you know, sometimes we'll have success with someone. They'll be taught, they'll learn, they'll grow, and then they're gone. And that happens, you know, and it happened in the first century as well as today. And so now he's gone to Corinth. So you're still left with Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla, waiting on Paul to get back. But we don't, and and there may be a hundred people converted by this time. We don't know, but it doesn't appear so. It appears as though when you come to Acts 19, it came to pass, whatever fairly short amount of time passes, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and he found certain disciples. Now, these disciples, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly, because Wes is going to come back in a couple of weeks and really talk about this passage, and I'm going to leave it to him to do that. But these disciples, like Apollos, maybe even taught by Apollos, we don't know, but like Apollos, if you look at verse 3, they only know John's baptism. Paul will indeed, in verse 5, teach them the truth, baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the number of those disciples, at least the men, verse 7, this is a a phrase really similar to the feeding of the 5,000 men besides women and children, but there were 12 men. They could have been all single, or they could have all had wives and families. No one knows. But the number of them was about 12, and that is the beginning of the church at Ephesus. Now, as we move from there, I want to talk a little bit about the early growth of the church, and it really is, there really is considerable growth. Stay with me here in Acts 19. We'll look at this, and we'll also branch out a little bit. So let's start in verse 8, after these 12 are converted, and it says, Paul, still speaking of him, he went into the synagogue, again, same M.O., went into the synagogue, and spoke boldly or confidently for the space of three months, disputing, notice that, and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. He's debating. The Jews were given to this. They certainly allowed it. They didn't frown upon it. We can even see if we were to go back to Acts 13, when someone would come into the synagogue, they would encourage that person to speak and teach and you know, tell us what you know type thing. They were hungry to learn. And they allowed this exchange. It's a healthy exchange. And if you'll notice what it's saying here, he was disputing. He's debating, literally. He is dialoguing. And when we talk about dialogue, a lot of times dialogue, the connotation of that is we have a pleasant conversation. Let's establish a dialogue between us. And a dialogue becomes, you know, I speak nicely and you speak nicely and we have a a congenial conversation. That's not what the word dialogue originally meant. Dialogue comes from a compound term in the original language, which means to reason through. That is, to find the logic through discussion of some subject. And what you're doing is, just like we are going to stand up here and debate, You are bringing up a subject and you're saying some say this or I say this or it is said of this, such and such. The person says yes, but such and such, so and so, and you reason. And hopefully by that kind of reasoning 
if you can maintain respect and honesty and all of that kind of thing, you reason through to the truth. Let me give you a little bit of a sidebar here and take just a few seconds to say this. If you went back and looked in America 200 years ago, and I'm talking about late 1700s, early, very early 1800s, you would see dialoguing, real dialogue, debating, going on in congregations, be they Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, whatever, congregational churches up here in, the, in New England, real dialogue. And they were debating themselves to the truth. Someone would bring up an issue. I ran across a verse in Acts, in the book of Acts, and it says on the first day of the week the disciples met together to break bread, and we don't do that. And someone else said, yeah, but tradition and law and our denomination and so forth. And the guy would say, yeah, but, you know, the Bible says that. Well, what does that mean? We need to choose a first day of the week, a Sunday. Someone else would say, no, on the first day of the week, it doesn't tell you a specific Sunday. So they debated themselves into the truth. And by dialogue and debate, they came to understand the practices of the New Testament, and they saw where their denominational practices were wrong, and wholesale people were converting into churches of Christ. And they were becoming congregations of the Lord. Now you can imagine if you're the heads of denominations and you're losing in some places 90% of the churches, you want to stop that. Debate became an ugly term. People learning on their own became something that was not supposed to be. They reverted back instead of sola scriptura and, you know, the scriptures only. And every man is a priest and all of that kind of thing. They began to revert back to the old clergy laity. You know, you don't know, you don't understand, I'm the educated one, etc., etc. And it took about 50 years, maybe 100 years in many cases, but they stopped it. And you don't have it today. In fact, if you mention debate or reason or all of this kind of thing today, people will say, no, I don't want any part of that. That's wrong. Well, it only became wrong when it became successful. The Jews do the same thing in the first century. So go back with me here and let's notice what's going on. Paul entered into the synagogue. And at this point, they're allowing that dialogue. They're allowing that debate. He's having some success. So let's read it, verse 9, or verse 8. He spoke confidently for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when various ones were hardened, they don't want the truth. And they surely don't want the success Paul is having. They did not believe. And they began to speak evil of, notice, that way. Wes talked about in a sermon a couple of months back, that Christianity was referred to as the way or that way. You see what they're doing here? He's arguing points of truth. They're putting down and speaking badly of Christianity. Because the arguments can't be answered. So when the arguments can't be answered, then you put down the whole system. And if you can't, you know, you can't achieve it that way, you put down the person doing the argument. And they'll do both in the history of Paul, obviously. Well, when that happened, Paul left them. Okay, enough of that. Then, if, you know, if that's the way it's going to be in the synagogues, then we'll just go over here, and one would think either this place was donated or they rented it or whatever, just like today. 
they set up in the school of one Tyrannus. Now, what does that mean? Well, different teachers, noted teachers, who had students who generally paid him in that day, would have a facility and people would gather together. That's a Grecian way, and it's very much influenced by Greece, uh, the Grecian culture. Well, Paul becomes the teacher in this school of Tyrannus, if you'll notice. Perhaps those that are with Paul, the Lukes and so forth of the world. But they set up in this school of Tyrannus, and people began to come to them. And so in verse 10, this continued, that is the teaching, the public teaching, the education in this school of Tyrannus. This goes on for the space of two years. And so much so, if you'll notice, so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, if you think about those two verses together, we commonly think of Paul going out knocking on doors all through the county. But what's going on here in Ephesus is just the opposite. He is in the school of Tyrannus, and all of Asia, apparently, that is, people that are interested, members of the church, and what are we talking about when we're talking about Asia? Well, we're talking about Asia Minor, not China and Japan, but we're talking about a province there with cities like Colossae and Pergamos and some of those cities you see, for example, in Revelation 2 and 3. And these are well-known cities and they're wealthy cities and they're cities where there are people that are very educated. And they hear that, they, that there is this man or maybe group of men who are teaching things and they're very exciting and they're different. And he's opening up the word of God and he really reasons from it. And they want to hear it. They want to see this and understand it and learn it. And Luke makes the observation that after two years, they had done so much teaching in this way that all of Asia, that is everybody interested certainly in the way, had come out, had been taught, had heard that. Now imagine the effect you're going to have with that kind of thing. They're going to go back into these places. I'll give you one brief point just to think about. Remember, Paul will write a letter to the Colossians. And one of the things he'll say to the Colossians, he'll acknowledge how well instructed, how much they know, and all of this kind of thing, but he's never met them. That is, he's never been to Colossae when he writes that letter. But he did teach in the school of Tyrannus. And those that would be the teachers in Colossae, the leaders, etc., would turn out and be there, and they would have personal knowledge of Paul. The people such as Philemon, that he'll write a letter to, etc. Well, anyway. So you see all of this thing going on, and let's just read and notice, and I'll read through these verses fairly quickly, but this is a work that's going on there. God, in verse 11, wrought spe special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were even brought uh, to the sick handkerchiefs or pieces of material, aprons, and diseases departed from them, and evil spirits would go out of people. And then certain of the vagabond Jews who were exorcists, they took upon them, and this is one of my favorite passages, <laughs> they took upon them to you know, drive out the evil spirits. And when they addressed the demons within people, the evil spirits... Uh, by the name of the Lord Jesus, they said, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. That's interesting to me. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, a chief of the priests, and he did that. And the evil spirit answers him back and says, You know, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? 
I, I, to me, that's just hilarious. I don't know. It may not strike you that way, but that's her- hilarious to me. But the day, you know, like, who are you? But Paul is doing all of this preaching. All of these miracles are being done. And notice Lou's conclusion about all of this. The man in whom the evil spirit, of course, leaped upon him, beat him up, and all of this. And this was known, verse 17, to all the Jews and Greeks that were dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came, and they confessed, and they showed their deeds. And even in verse 19, this extends to people involved in what we might call today witchcraft, or the occult, or sorcery. It says, many of them also that use curious arts brought their books together and they burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And I assure you that is a huge amount of money worth of books being, that must have been some more bonfire. But I love verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What do we have in Ephesus? We've got a church that begins maybe a little slowly. It doesn't talk about someone going in and like, you know, uh, Philip going down to Samaria and a ready audience and everybody just like, yeah, you know, baptize us. Or Peter on the day of Pentecost. Maybe it starts a little slowly. At least that seems to be the indication. And that maybe in the first few weeks or even months, the only real success is with a visitor and he leaves. A lot of good work done in Corinth, but... Ephesus isn't off the ground. But boy, it gets off the ground. And even though we haven't seen the names Aquila and Priscilla mentioned in Acts 19, we will see them mentioned in 1 Corinthians. They're there with Paul. You know, different ones are there in the city of Ephesus. They're teaching and people are learning. And they're they're very studious about it. And when people are willing to study the Word of God, really study the Word of God... They don't need somebody like Paul to stay there to be grounded and continue in the faith. They're learning it for themselves, which is exactly what you want. That's exactly what should happen. You never want a church. I give you, I was impressed with this. I was listening to a member of the church, and they do broadcast their services down in, in Alabama. The guy that I wrote about who had passed away um, would be, what, two weeks ago now, the week before Christmas. But I was listening to that Wednesday night. The guy had died. He'd been killed suddenly on Tuesday. And I was listening to the broadcast on Wednesday night. Guy got up in the congregation, taught the lesson. I suppose to people out in the world that might seem cold, you know, that he just gets up and teaches a Bible lesson. I know the guy that was killed, and I know him very well. Exactly what he would have wanted. He was an elder. He was a preacher at that congregation for 53 years. And he was an elder there since 70 or 71, somewhere back then. So long time work. Guy taught the lesson. And when he finished the lesson, he made a very simple announcement. And he broke up and he started to cry. And he said, we've had a great loss here. And we're going to miss him. But because of his work, we are going to go on. That's exactly what you want. You don't want a church to depend on you. That if you suddenly died or if you pulled out in front of someone and you were killed instantly, 
that the congregation would fall apart. You want to do the work of teaching the Word of God and teaching it in such a way that you can die and the work goes on. That's exactly what Paul was doing in this place. And then Paul, notice verse 21, things had ended and he purposed in his spirit that he was going to leave and move on. And the work was going to continue. Now we know that the church is at a point, and you have to look ahead a little bit, but you know the church is at a point, they're very studious people here, very capable people, they're going to even be at a point to appoint elders. And they're going to be appointed, and we'll learn that, and I'll talk more about that in the next lesson, but they'll be appointed, and and we'll see them in Acts 20. He's going to lead younger men there and send younger men there, such as a Timothy or a Tychicus and uh, people like this. And we're going to talk more about that, but they're, they're capable, and they're going to teach, and these elders are going to teach, and they're going to be people there to carry on the work And I believe that if we put a lot of things together, and I'm kind of looking at a number of other passages in my mind and doing that, but I think Paul's intentions were, I'm going to go back and strengthen some you know, the churches that I've had contact with in Greece, and then we know from the book of Romans, he really intended to move on up further into Europe, perhaps Spain and some of those places like that. It wasn't his intention to stay in Ephesus forever. He's done a lot of great work there, and now he's moving on. He doesn't need to be there. But because of the work he's done, they can carry on. Now, he will, obviously. We said that he probably goes there somewhere around the year 52, AD 52. We know he stays there probably for a total of nearly three years, so 52 to 54 or 55, right in that area. And we know that about five years later, he's going to write a letter, the book of Ephesians, And he's going to write back to a congregation. Think about how well-grounded these people are. He's writing back to a church that he doesn't have to say like he does to the Galatians. You fools. So soon removed. I leave the area and you immediately go to this. Or like he has to say to Corinth. He's been told you've got this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem. No, he writes a book, the book of Ephesians... And you don't see him saying anywhere in the book, I know you've got this problem, or I've heard that these people are troubling you, or I've heard that some have been doing this. No, it's a doctrinal book that from beginning to end, it's an encouragement. Just be strong, stay strong, do more solidify your relationship with Jesus Christ, your betrothal, your marriage. You know, you're the bride, he's the betrothed husband, etc. Put on the whole armor of God, be strong. Do your war against Satan, etc. But nothing within the book indicates they're not doing that already. That's an amazing church. And they are very, very strong. And it's sad because what we will see next is this well-grounded, flourishing church, just like always can happen. There are dangers to it. And we're going to look at those all along, even before the fact. God, through various teachers, especially Paul, is warning, don't let this happen. This can happen. Be aware of this. And we're going to look further into the history of the church. We've gone about, as I've mentioned some of those things, we're in the first ten years 
of the church at Ephesus. Great beginning. Great growth. Strong congregation. Elders already appointed and in place. That's some tremendous success. But it's what they do with it. So, we'll stop there and we'll pick up with that idea uh, around 80-60 when we come back. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, if you think about the church in Ephesus and you think about their willingness to grow, you might look at yourself and you might say, you know what, I know I need to make some changes. I want to be a Christian. I want to be that person like Apollos, fervent in the Spirit. I want to be fired up for the Lord. I want to take what I know. And I do know some things. And I can do some things. I want to use those to teach the truth. I want to be that person that accomplishes something. Again, we're New Year's Day, so it's a perfect time to be looking at your life like that. Maybe you're here tonight and you believe in Jesus, and you'll confess that. You're willing to repent, to change your life. You will be baptized to wash your sins away. Start all brand new, born again, a new creation in God. Maybe you're, you've done that. You're here tonight. You're looking at yourself and you say, I've done that. But I, I just, I know I'm not on the right track. I'm not going where I need to go. I'm not doing what I need to do. And you know the Lord is a merciful God. He's interested, wants us to just turn things around. And once we do that, we're right in His sight. We're ready to carry on. Here tonight, and you need to come. Please do. While we stand and sing.